0: On this episode of Bleak, I will be doing case updates on some more recent cases, primarily focusing on the arrest of the Long Island serial killer, some case updates on Brian Koberger, and also some updates on the Delphi alleged killer of Libby Abbey, Abby, Richard Allen. Buckle up, baby, because things are about to get bleak. So I know it's been a minute since we've come out with any new episodes. The biggest reason being is that my sister and I, who's my co-host, we have trouble finding time to do it because we're both full-time working moms. We have seven kids between the two of us, and we want our content to be high quality. We don't like to just put out half-assed material. So what I decided to do, because the place re-record is in my house, um, I'm going to be doing, and I'm not going to promise on the frequency of these, but I'm going to be doing like updates of recent cases because I try to keep up with, um, some of the more high profile cases that you see in the media and whatnot. And sometimes it's nice to just be able to know what's going on with cases that haven't yet been resolved. I know I personally appreciate that kind of material. So this episode is mainly going to be about the arrest of Rex Heuerman, who is the alleged Long Island serial killer. I'm going to talk about, you know, not go into, you know, huge detail about it, but at least kind of give people the highlights if you're not overly familiar with it. And then I'm going to talk about the latest about Brian Koberger and the Idaho Four, and then... If I have time, I'm also going to get into um, the Delphi murders of Liberty, German, and Abigail Williams and their alleged killer, Richard Allen, who was arrested but not yet uh, convicted at this point. So that's my plan, and then I completed the research for a normal episode so my sister and I are going to get together hopefully by the end of this week and be able to record a regular episode but these like I said these are going to be case updates that I'm going to do on my own so I hope people um, enjoy the more regular updates I'm not like I said promising anything but at least I'm going to try So without further ado, so the Long Island serial killer, this was actually a case that I was somewhat familiar with. Um, Some people are only familiar with it in the sense of the Gilgo Beach 4, and so we're going to kind of get into how everything came about in this case and how long this has been going on and what led to the arrest of Rex Heuerman on July 13th, 2023. Most of the information that's official comes from the bail application. Um, So Suffolk County in New York released their, it's called a bail application. And basically it goes through why they don't believe the defendant should be eligible for getting any kind of bail. So a lot of times this document isn't as thorough as this particular one is, and this bail document actually kind of lays out the entire case, and it's very informative. And the nice part about getting a document like this is you know that it's true information, it's accurate, you're not relying on rumors or gossip, you know it, it's, you know, accurate info. So the first page of this document just talks about the charges against Rex Heuerman. He's being charged. Um, so he's only being charged for three of the murders at this point. If you're familiar with this case or this series of murders, they actually found like 10 or 11 sets of remains, um, on Gilgo beach and then nearby, um, kind of like this big stretch of land. I don't think it's just Gilgo Beach, but there were four sets of remains found on Gilgo Gilgo Beach that they knew were all connected to the same killer. And that, so, uh, Rex Heuerman is being charged with three of those four homicides and he's being charged with murder in the first degree and murder in the second degree. Um, so those are a total of, uh, six charges. And then, um, the document gets into why bail should not be granted in this, um, in this particular situation. And it just talks about the fact that they found child pornography materials in his, uh, or on his computer that they found very sadistic images, um, that he possesses multiple firearms. We find out that this man has 92 gun permits And he also has over 200 firearms. So, of course, he has the ability to hurt a lot of people with access to that many weapons. Um, So now we're going to get into the discovery of the victims and how this all came about. So this case is complicated because most of these victims are sex workers or escorts And, uh, how this all came about, because unfortunately when people fall on hard times, especially young women who are working as sex workers, oftentimes when they disappear, the investigations are not as thorough because, you know, the reality is they're seen as throwaways and their cases aren't taken necessarily as seriously as maybe some other people. So all of these girls had been reported missing or young women had been reported missing but none of i mean they didn't have a body so they they weren't presumed dead necessarily which you will see the presumption that somebody is dead without a body a lot sooner in a lot of other cases which is unfortunate but how this all came about is a young sex worker named uh Shannon Gilbert was on um she was so she was on Oak Beach, which is near Gilgo Beach, and she was meeting a client uh as an escort and she had her driver drop her off on Oak Beach now, from what I'm told the Oak Beach is in uh Long Island New York, and there aren't a lot of houses in this area it's mostly preserved like preserved wildlife areas along the ocean. And there are very few houses in the area. And the houses that are in this area tend to be um, upper class people, retirees. Um, There just aren't that many homes, but the homes that are there are, you know, nice and high class. So she was dropped off to see a client by her driver. And it was kind of like this house on the beach with uh, a lot of pretty isolated and kind of a open area and so she's dropped off and her driver is waiting somewhere near the house and according to the client that she was seeing shannon gilbert at some point or another before they had had any kind of sexual contact she starts freaking out and runs out of the house and says basically that somebody is trying to kill her. So she's she calls 911 from her cell phone as she's running outside from this house. And as she's running, she stumbles across other houses. And she this 911 call ends up being over 20 minutes. And she speaks with one of the homeowners whose house she stumbles upon. And she, she's freaking out. She's like, someone's chasing me. Someone's trying to kill me and the homeowner is trying to convince her to stay in his house until the police arrive, and he himself ends up calling 911. Now, by the time somebody else actually called 911, she had already been running around this area for, like I said, about 20 minutes or so, and by the time the police arrive on scene, um, she had already fled the area. And the police, she kept telling the police she was on a di- somewhere else, like not where she was. So she was on Oak Beach, but she was telling the police she was somewhere else. So the police weren't able to really get a good idea of where she was at until this homeowner called the police and he was able to say, well, this is where she is. But unfortunately she had ran off. And so by the time police responded to these calls, they couldn't find Shannon Gilbert. So at some point or another, because she was still not found, they had a search team basically searching for her. And so this is all the way back in, um, 2010 mind you so when they find these remains um, the first set of remains it's December 11th 2010 and this officer named John Malia they say he was conducting a training exercise with his canine partner named Blue Blue is the name of the dog along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach, Suffolk County, New York and This confused me because I'm like, well, so he's just doing a random training exercise and they just stumble upon remains. But my understanding is this area was being searched in connection with Shannon Gilbert. And that is why this officer was in this particular area because Gilgo Beach is not far from Oak Beach, which is where Shannon Gilbert was last known to have been. So this officer's canine blue signals that he's located a set of human remains. And of course, initially they're thinking, well, this must be Shannon Gilbert. But after they send the remains off to the medical examiner, these remains were later identified as those of Melissa Bartholomey. So, They start looking into who this Melissa Bartholomew is and she is a sex worker in her early 20s that had been reported missing prior to um, 2010. And then they keep searching this area because they still haven't found the person that they are initially were looking for. And they end up finding three additional sets of remains, and so they find four four sets of remains in total. All four of these uh, victims were petite females, and when I say petite, I'm talking 90 to 110 pounds, so, like, not just normal petite, we're talking, like, very petite. They were twenty between the ages of 22 and 27 years old, And um, they all had missing clothing and personal possessions. And they had all been killed by homicide. And all four of them had been contacted shortly before their disappearances with a person using a burner cell phone. Which I'm sure most of you guys know what a burner phone is. But in case you don't, um, they're basically cell phones without an associated verified identity. So you can go to the store and pick up a cell phone and not register it under your name, essentially. You could register it under no name. You could register it under a business. You could use a fake name. Um, and It's meant to be a phone that you're using temporarily or maybe um, actually... My two sons, I have four kids. Two of my sons use what's technically our burner phones, and we just pay for a a new plan every month. They get unlimited talker text. It's like twenty five bucks. So it's not always used for nefarious purposes, but burner phones are definitely associated with um, you know, at times you'll see them in homicide cases as someone who's trying to hide their identity. So, they find these four sets of remains, and at that point, they know they're all connected. Um, One of the big reasons they know this is because all four of them were wrapped in burlap. And it wasn't just regular burlap. It had, like, a camo print on it, and it's something that I've been told is often used for duck hunting. So, they, of course... Um, This is a huge piece of evidence because this could have possibly been in the killer's car, in the killer's home. So they, of course, are forensically reviewing and sending off um, hairs, fibers, DNA, all that kind of stuff from the burlap. They did locate um, hair on the burlap at some point, which is part of what ended up cracking the case. So, they don't really get into all of this in the documents here, and I'm not going to get into it in a huge detail, but a lot of people are like, well, this these remains were discovered in 2010, so why on earth is this just being solved in 2023? And that's a valid question. Um, from what I have heard, the initial police chief who was handling this in Suffolk County had some issues with um, so first of all he refused to allow the FBI or any other agencies to assist them he had a lot of he ended up getting fired and I believe he even went to jail he was arrested and charged because he was basically a crooked cop to put it um, to kind of Sum it up, but I, you know, I'm not going to get into details with everything he did, but a lot of what happened with this police department and this police chief plays into why it took so long to solve this case. Unfortunately, eventually in 2022, they did put together a task force to specifically try to get fresh eyes on the case And within about a year of starting that task force, they made their arrest. So it was very successful. And you come to find out that they had information in this case that could have led to an arrest a lot sooner. And, you know, people don't like it when you criticize the police. And, again, I know we've talked about this in the past. You know, I'm one of those people that, you know, give credit when credit's due, when police do a great job. Um, I'm going to be the first person to say so. And when they don't do a good job or when they are racist or crooked or bigoted, I'm also going to point that out because it's not a black and white issue. There are good cops and there are bad cops, and that's just the way it is. So in this particular situation, the task force that was put together did an incredible job of doing what they needed to do to get it solved. But unfortunately, that's not what happened in the beginning stages. Now, I will say technology did catch up with the perpetrator, making it easier to solve this case in modern times because there was some updated DNA technology where they were able to test some of those hairs that came off of the burlap, and that was not available back in, you know, 2010 when these bodies were initially discovered. So, you know, it's not necessarily all because of bad police work, but that definitely is a factor. So once they um, started this task force, they found out... uh, So one of the officers or detectives that was on the task force was looking through... Some of the old evidence files, and noticed that there had been a witness description of a possible suspect. And what had happened is Melissa Bartelamy, who is one of the victims. She pulled a ruse on a client, whom they now suspect was Rex Huerman. And what she supposedly did was when Rex Huerman got there to see her as a client of hers, of Melissa Barthelemy's, she had a man come out who pretended to be her boyfriend to scare him away and say, what are you doing? This is my girlfriend. And apparently the client had already paid for the services and he, of course, was not happy about it. So he sends a text message to Melissa I'm sorry, it wasn't Melissa. I think it was Amber Costello, which, I mean, I guess neither here nor there, but it was the victim that he, that pulled this ruse was actually Amber Costello. My apologies. And um, so the client says, you owe me for next time. He texts her that. And then he ends up seeing her again a week or two later, and then she ends up never being seen again. So this man who, I don't know if he really was her boyfriend or he was just pretending to be her boyfriend, but he actually saw the client approach Amber Costello's home at the time, and he saw not only what the man looked like, but he also got a description of the vehicle he was driving. Now, what makes this, part of it's so important is the witness describes the client as being at least six foot six inches tall and he states he looked like an ogre and he also says he was driving a Chevy Avalanche. Now what's baffling to me and of course, you know, you can call it Monday morning quarterbacking hindsight is 2020, but, there aren't a lot of guys that are six foot six just in general, and he described him as being like close to three hundred pounds, which if you look at him, I say the guy is like three fifty um I've heard him described as like two fifty, and I don't buy it he's he's a huge guy, and this description of describing him as an ogre, if you look up a picture of Rex Huerman it's spot on. And I don't think all really tall guys or girls for that matter, look like ogres. Um, because my husband is six foot five. My husband doesn't look like an ogre. This guy just, excuse me, I'm choking on my spit. This guy just has a look about him that makes him look like an ogre. And so, and, and the, the fact that, you know, he described him as being just this massive guy just as wide as he is tall, almost. Um, And so that becomes important because, again, they can go through driver's license databases and see, you know, you could possibly eliminate a huge portion of the area you're looking into just based on this guy's height. And then come to find out the Chevy Avalanche is a type of pickup truck, and it only was a model that they did for a couple of years, to my understanding. So it's an unusual vehicle. So if you take the fact that this guy is six foot six inches tall, he's, excuse me, over 300 pounds, and he's driving this weird car, the fact that they never narrowed this down at the time is a little frustrating now um it's never really nobody involved in the investigation back in the day has ever really addressed this but that's just the reality of the situation so the new task force somebody picks up on this right away and they start you know cross-checking these parameters of the height and weight and vehicle and Rex Huerman's name gets thrown into the mix pretty early on and they know that they're looking for somebody who's using burner phones because all of these victims had been contacted via burner phone prior to being killed so they start looking into Hureman and basically they're trying to rule him out, which is what they do with anybody that's a possible suspect. They basically start, you know, their checklist and start trying to rule the person out as fast as they can. But with Rex Hurman, it sounds like he just kept checking every single box until they really started to think it was him. Now, one of the things they were also able to figure out through the phone records is they could get locations on these burner phones, and what they saw was whoever was the perpetrator was in a place off of Long Island called Massapequa Park, which is just like a suburb of Long Island, and then this person also would go into Manhattan and what they found out was Rex Hurman was an architect in Manhattan, and then he lived in Massapequa Park. So they know that the perpetrator actually called the one of his victims' family members. I believe it was the sister of um, Marine Brainerd Barnes. And she's one of the victims. He actually hasn't been charged with hers yet, but it sounds like he's going to be very soon. But he, um, they have a record of him calling on one of his burner phones, the sis, her sister, and taunting her and basically saying, you know, things along the lines of, do you know what happened to your sister? And he never alluded to killing her until... The last time he called her, he finally told her that he had killed her. And when these calls are being placed, they can tell that at times he's in Manhattan and at other times he's in Massapequa Park, which of course lines up with where Rex Hureman lives and where he works. And they're able to see that when he's he's placing a lot of these calls from right outside his office, like within feet of his architectural I can't, architectural firm. So Rex Huerman started his own architectural firm uh, many years ago, I believe, maybe in the 90s, could have even been the 80s. And his daughter, who is grown, Rex Heuermann's 59 years old currently, um, she actually worked or works, probably worked in the past tense now, with her dad. Um, So that's unfortunate. This man has a biological daughter who is a grown woman, and then he has a stepson. His wife was married prior, and his stepson, from all accounts, has some kind of disability or special needs. Nobody's quite sure what exactly those disabilities are. His wife is actually of Icelandic descent. Her name is Asa Ellerup, and I might not be pronouncing that correctly. She emigrated from Iceland as a child. And another thing they found out is all of these homicides occurred when Rex Herman's wife was out of town. So one of the homicides occurred when she was in Iceland because she would go there to visit her family, which makes sense. Another one occurred when she was in Maryland. Another one occurred when she was in New Jersey. And for that to just keep being a coincidence seems very unlikely. What they ended up doing is um, they also, I believe, and, and this hasn't been confirmed, but I believe they used genetic genealogy to match. There was hair found on the burlap sacks And a lot of the um, hairs came back to Rex Hureman's wife. Now, a lot of people were speculating that she was possibly involved, but that does not look to be the case. She actually filed for divorce a couple of days after he was arrested. But, of course, I have long hair. My hair gets all over. I mean, my hair is everywhere in my house. So that, to me, isn't surprising that her hair would be, especially on something like burlap, to me, burlap would hair would adhere to burlap pretty easily. So that didn't surprise me at all, but that was part of the reason they were able to catch him was because the technology to, um, you know, hairs degrade over time, but they have gotten better at testing mitochondrial DNA, which is what you would get from a hair sample. And so some of the DNA testing to match those hairs to a person or to identify the person those hairs came from, that technology has greatly improved. And that's in part how they were able to narrow down to Rex Hurman because they were able to match those hairs to his wife. And I do believe genetic genealogy probably played a role in that part of it. So... They have actually been surveilling Rex Huerman for over a year. Um, so his name came up with, um, it, you know, in the task force investigation rather quickly. And he actually has properties. So he's got the Massapequa Park home, which is actually his childhood home. And he lived there as a child and then bought the house from his mom at some point or another. And his mom has since died, but apparently, you know, he made pretty good money as an architect and that's not a cheap area to live. A lot of the houses go for, you know, three quarters of a million dollars, but he's living in this pretty nice neighborhood and his house is run down. The yard is not maintained. You know, the exterior's falling apart according to people that have been inside the house, which I don't think are very many people, but you know, the inside's not well taken care of, very messy. So I don't know if that says anything about him as a killer, but it's definitely, he, he kind of stuck out like a sore thumb in terms of his home in the neighborhood in which he lived um he also they're finding out owned property in South Carolina in a small town and his brother he has a younger brother named Craig Hewerman. Craig Hewerman is described as being kind of a grouchy guy. Apparently, he lives on the South Carolina property that Rex his brother owns. And there's a sign on that property that says something to the effect of no warrant, no entry. And one of the neighbors had said that Craig Heurman bashed him in the head with some kind of metal tool because he mowed his lawn on a Sunday. And apparently this Craig Heurman thinks it is just the worst thing ever to mow your lawn on a Sunday. So he sounds like kind of a little bit of an odd guy. Now, of course, you have to take any kind of rumors with a grain of salt, but that has all come out on pretty official sounding media, um, and I've heard it in multiple places. Again, take it for what it's worth. Um, He also has property in Las Vegas and was known to be a poker player. So, of course, what they're doing now is they are looking at missing person reports or homicides that are unsolved in South Carolina and Las Vegas to see if they can connect him to any of those cases. The reason that this is so striking is because he would have been 46 years old at the time of the homicide, the first homicide of the Gilgo Beach 4 most serial killers do not start killing in their mid forties. So they really need to, and they are looking at where he's been prior to that first known homicide, because the likelihood that it was his first is extremely unlikely. Um, so, they were granted their no bail, like he's not eligible for bail, so he's sitting in jail currently. Um, and that's about it for right now. He has a, some kind of a court hearing on August 1st. I don't think it's anything groundbreaking in terms of this case, but it's just kind of going through the court proceedings to start scheduling future court proceedings. And if you aren't aware or familiar with these cases, they ended up actually finding, it was either 10 or 11 sets of remains in total. So Rex Hureman's charged with three counts of homicide for the three women. And he is going to be charged with Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who's the one of the Gilgo Beach Four that he has not been charged with yet. It sounds like there was some issues with not being able to... Some of the phone records in her case don't exist anymore, but it sounds like they're still going to be able to tie him to that homicide. So he's likely going to be charged with this fourth one. Now, a lot of people are wondering okay, what are the odds that another serial killer was operating and dumping bodies in that same spot? Because a lot of the other homicides or the bodies they found, like I said, they found a total of like 11 bodies in that stretch of uh, beach. And one of them was actually a male victim, either a male, like an Asian male possibly a transgender male. And they also found the remains of a toddler. And I had heard that this transgender male was named Peaches and Peaches was the biological parent of the toddler that was found. There are some things about some of the other victims that don't necessarily match the known MO of Rex Hureman that make people think he possibly isn't the perpetrator in those cases. But again, like I said, it does seem odd that two killers would be operating and using the exact same dumping site. But, you know, it's also possible and a lot of experts think that it could possibly be somebody that someone else is out there besides him that some of these bodies, um, you know, are attributed to. So we'll have to kind of wait and see on that part. But um, if you look at, even despite the homicides, if you look at some of the uh, Google searches of Rex Hiraman, I've some of the podcasts have read them aloud. They're horrific to the point that I'm not comfortable saying them on a podcast because it's it's horrifying. But just to kind of, I'm not going to say exactly what these searches were verbatim, but they had to do with um, torture porn of young girls, you know, specifically looking for young chubby girls. Um, he had some interest in Asian uh, men and women. So even though these four homicides we know are attributed to Rex Heerman were all petite you know, mostly white females that were sex workers. It is possible that he strayed from that MO and chose a different victim profile just based on his Google searches. But this guy was looking at child pornography that just despicable. Um, like I said, if you, the searches that he did are out there, you can find them on the New York times, website has a copy of the bail application and it has all of those details. But this guy, just based on his child pornography searches, um, he should be in jail for the rest of his life, just based on what he is sought to look at and what he likely looked at. Um, So if you want to get into all the nitty gritty details of each victim, which I think is important, Um, This bail application you can find in the New York Times website. It talks about each victim and what, um, you know, when they were last seen. Um, So we've got Megan Waterman is one of the victims. I believe she had a young daughter at the time who's now a teenager. Amber Costello. Yeah, a lot of these ladies were moms, and they were just doing this type of work because they were in a bad position. And you know they—they they were all—they all had loving families. Um, so Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartelamy, Amber Costello, and Marine Brainerd Barnes are the four victims that we know for sure are likely connected to Rex Herman. And I think that about sums up. The main points on that case. Uh, so, the next court appearance, like I said, is August 1st, and so I'll try to bring you more if anything transpires in that court appearance. So, next up, um, I'm going to update a little bit on the Brian Koberger case of the Idaho Four, the murders of Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, and Kaylee Gonsalves. They were murdered in November of 2022 in their off-campus home in Idaho, uh, Moscow, Idaho. I'm sure most people are familiar with this case. I'm not going to go through the entire case, obviously. The only... So this case is scheduled to go to trial on October 2nd. Um, Brian Koberger has been charged with uh, four counts of first-degree murder and four counts of... or one count of burglary. And basically the biggest things are, um, since I last updated the case, Brian Koberger had until I believe July 24th or today's July 25th. It's actually my 40th birthday today. Um, but he had until today or yesterday to come up with an alibi which I think is preposterous. It's like you either have an alibi or you don't. And his defense team was claiming that they needed all of the discovery before they could say for sure whether they had an alibi. And it's like coming up with an alibi is not coming up with a story. It's it's like you either were with someone who can verify where you were or you weren't. So I just found that to be completely absurd But um, I believe he has not come forward saying he has any kind of alibi at this point. Um, One of the other things that came out is... um, So genetic genealogy played a huge role in the arrest of Brian Koberger. And genetic genealogy has been used to solve some cold cases. So it's not completely new within the court system. The Golden State Killer was... Uh, Solved, and he was convicted using genetic genealogy. So the defense is upset because the prosecution freely admits they used genetic genealogy, but the defense would like a copy of basically the family tree that was used to connect the DNA to Brian Koberger, and the defense prosecution doesn't want to give it to them because they're basically saying, well, you have to protect the identity of all these people that are in the database that are like relatives of Brian Koberger that aren't even aware of it. And they didn't want all of their names to come out. And they basically, their argument is it's not relevant. This type of information has never been asked to be provided in other cases And I can see both sides of this argument. You know, I had heard another commentator compare it to getting an answer to a math problem without showing your work. I can kind of see that, but my thought on it is if we know Brian Koberger's DNA matches DNA at the scene left on the knife sheath, which we know that to be true, then it really doesn't matter what family tree they used because you could have a independent genetic genealogist from the defense's side come up with a family tree from that DNA and it's going to lead to Brian Koberger because that's already been established because they've already matched his DNA. Now that he's been arrested, they do a cheek swab and his DNA has already been matched to that DNA found on the knife sheath underneath one of the murder victims. So, I I get it. I, I, I agree with the prosecution. Ultimately, I think the prosecution's worried that people are going to be afraid to put their... DNA in law enforcement databases, but something I don't know that a lot of people know, and I know this because I actually did a, um, ancestry DNA test myself just cause I was curious of my own heritage. When so you're not automatically, your DNA is not automatically entered into a law enforcement database. You actually have to give explicit permission to have your DNA in the law enforcement database through a service called JedMatch. That's the one that law enforcement has access to. And not only did I have to give, because I gave permission because if, if, I mean, if my one of my relatives are out murdering people, you know, they, I'm sorry, they deserve to be caught. Um, so you actually have to upload a zip file to this other site and like sign a document. So it isn't like you could ever accidentally give Jedmatch permission to use your DNA without knowing it or something like that. So that's really a non-issue. Like people that want their DNA in the law enforcement database, they understand that that's what's happening. And, again, it's not an automatic process that you're, like, unaware of. So I just think people should know that because it, it's, you know, if you want to take one of these tests and you don't want your DNA in that database, you don't have to have it in there. Another thing that's kind of funny is, you know, anybody that's up in arms about this type of thing, the amount of representation they have of white people's, you know, European Americans is so robust that they can pretty much trace any white person's DNA this way through genetic genealogy because they have a huge, that group of people is the biggest group that are getting these tests done. And so I, recently was looking into a case of a Native American woman and they used genealogy to identify her remains. So it was a little bit different. It wasn't to catch the killer, but the problem was there was such little representation of Native American women that they actually had to wait for the database to get more people. So they got, you know, cause if you don't have enough relatives, even if they're second, third cousins, you have to have enough relatives to trace that DNA back to the source. So in, you know, it doesn't really matter at this point if you do, or you don't allow your DNA in a database, they have enough, especially if you're a white person, um, they have enough white people dna and i'm sure that there is you know i think the one that they the uh race that they have the hardest time or with is native american in terms of representation um so that's just an interesting fact about genetic genealogy So they're kind of going back and forth arguing about some things between the prosecution and the defense in that case, which isn't too surprising. These are like normal things that happen. Um, Something else that came out was apparently no DNA was found in Brian Koberger's car office or home. And the defense is basically like, well, he has absolutely no connection to these victims We want you to drop the case, which is preposterous because it's like, well, other than the fact that his DNA was on the knife sheath underneath a homicide victim, like that is a connection. And he wasn't arrested until six weeks after the homicides occurred. So he had six weeks to, apparently that, you know, he was seen bleaching his car. He had six weeks to... Destroy evidence So while it might be a little Surprising they didn't really find much In his car I don't find that to be shocking I would have found that more shocking if he had been Arrested like the next day But you're talking six weeks Is a long time to to cover your tracks And so um, Other than that That's pretty much the latest Um, They're just doing a little bit Of back and forth on you know, we, we want you to, you know, the defense wants to see this from the prosecution. And, um, as far as I know, that trial is still scheduled to start on October 2nd, although I'd be extremely surprised if it actually did, um, because there, according to the defense, there's like, I don't remember how many terabytes of evidence that they have been given by the prosecution, and it would be really unusual for a trial to start less than a year from high-profile homicides like this case. So we will see if that actually starts on October 2nd or not. And then last but not least, I'm going to update you on the Delphi case. If you're not familiar, just a real quick rundown. In um, February of 20... Sorry, I'm doing this all by memory. February of 2017... Abigail Williams and Liberty German, German, oh, she was also called Libby. Um, they were found deceased in a wildlife kind of remote area in Delphi, Indiana. Um, it was a horrific scene. It, um, we found out just recently cause their cause of death had not been, verified but they were actually bludgeoned to death. Um, they were like 14-year-old girls. Um a horrific case. Finally uh several years later, they it was just like I think it was October of 2022, they arrested Richard Allen, a local Delphi resident for their murders. He's 50 years old. He is in the um in Indiana correctional facility awaiting trial currently. And so his defense team is saying that he is not being treated properly. So he's being held in a prison and typically defendants are held in jail prior to homicide trials. And the reason he's being held in a prison is because they're worried about, um, threats on his life because when you kill children, they don't like you in jail. They actually call child molesters chomos, I heard. Um, So they don't have like a solitary uh, place in jail, at least not in the particular jail he would be housed in. So he has lost a ton of weight and his mental capacity has declined and he looks really dirty and disheveled and his defense team is very upset saying that he's not being treated properly. But come to find out, um, so in some recent documents that came out, Richard Allen actually confessed to these murders of Liberty and Abby On jailhouse phone calls to his wife in April of 2023. And a lot of this disheveled, you know, decreased mental status happened after these multiple confessions that were recorded on these jailhouse calls. So. A lot of people are speculating, myself included, that maybe his sudden change of mental status happened because he had made those confessions and maybe had some regrets about doing so. Um, you know, there is husband-wife privilege. Normally, your uh, husband or a wife does not have to testify against their spouse, you know, their spousal privilege. But it does not apply when you are on a jailhouse phone call where it specifically says this call is being recorded. So that doesn't apply here. Cause that was the first thought a lot of defense attorneys were saying that, you know, maybe they could, you know, say something to that effect that a wife or a husband cannot incriminate each other. But again, that does that. It's only like in the comforts of your own home. Like if your husband tells you he did something horrible. You're not obligated to testify against him or your wife, your spouse, I should say. So they were, the defense filed this big document saying that, you know, Richard Allen was being mistreated in the fe- and they didn't want him to be held in a prison. They thought it was more appropriate that he's hel- housed in a jail because the conditions are so much worse in this prison. But, um, it sounds like the warden responded to those allegations that he was being mistreated because they also said, you know, that he wasn't, you know, he was wearing the same clothes days at day after day and he was dirty and he smelled and all this type of stuff. And so the warden says, hey, look, he's offered a shower three times a week like all the other inmates. He's um, He was also going on a hunger strike, so he was choosing not to eat. He's given, like, three sets of clothes every week, which is standard for all prisoners. He can choose not to change his clothes. They can't force him to do so. And a lot of what's going on with him and his disheveled condition is basically things that he's choosing to do himself. You know, he's choosing not to change his clothes. He's choosing not to eat. He apparently had a tablet that he could make phone calls in and listen to music in his cell, which is not something other prisoners have because he's in solitary confinement. And he broke his own tablet. I'm under the impression, based on what I've heard, that he did that intentionally after he started having this mental break or whatever you want to call it so they're like look we've given him extra privileges with this tablet that other inmates don't get um and apparently west so he's in westville correctional in indiana which like i said it's a prison and i've actually heard interviews with people that have been inmates there and it's not a pleasant place um in the terms of like on the spectrum of jails across their prisons across the country. You know, it's, it's one of the worst, worst ones apparently, but it's a jail. It's a prison. I just keep calling it a jail. It's a prison. It's not supposed to be pleasant. And it sounds like at face value, a lot of the reason that Richard Allen is deteriorating are because he's making, you know, he's making these choices himself. So I, I, I see both sides to that. The only thing I would be concerned about is in the future, if he is convicted, then you could see the defense trying to get some kind of an appeal based on some of this stuff. His defense team said they were having trouble, you know, he, they've got to be able to go into the jail or the prison and meet with their client to prepare for trial. So the attorneys were saying initially um, that's not something that prisons are typically dealing with because once someone's in prison, they're not preparing for trial. And so initially the lawyers were having a hard time getting into the jail to speak with Richard Allen, which was an issue, but that has now since been resolved. But Westville is considerably farther away from Delphi and the county jail is very close to where his attorney's office is, whereas Westville prison is very far away. So his lawyers also are having to deal with this extra commute. And so, you know, there are some concerns, but given the fact now that this guy has confessed to these homicides several times on recordings, to me, you know, is a sign that he likely, you know, they already have a lot to convict him. Um, Some of the new information that came out in some of the new documents, because these were just, these documents were just released within the last month or two. Um, There was actually a witness that saw Richard Allen on the bridge because these girls were like they were filming a Snapchat video on this uh, bridge in Delphi um, near where their bodies were discovered, and Richard Allen was seen in that area, and he was described as being muddied and bloodied. So he had mud and blood all over him. Um, One of the girls took a Snapchat video of the suspect, unbeknownst to him, And the police released that and you can see a man walking on the bridge wearing like a black hoodie and jeans. I heard Richard Allen is only like five foot, two inches tall too, which is kind of strange. It's just, he's just a really little guy. There's nothing wrong with that, but um, just not what I would have expected for whatever reason. Um, So there were some witnesses. That was new information. And the confessions was new information. And basically, um, it sounds like those confessions that he made to his wife in those phone calls is probably going to be fair game for that to come out in trial. His attorneys, Richard Allen's attorneys, are trying to say that those confessions were because of his you know, confused state of mind, you know, because he had been acting like he had some kind of mental changes within the last few months. But again, the jury will have to decide for themselves. Um, some patients, or I'm sh- not that he's a patient of mine, but, um, some people will, it's called malingering, where, um, you're kind of using having a mental health or medical diagnosis to your advantage to try to get out of, um, you know, criminal liability. So I kind of think there is some malingering going on here with him. And um, it just seems awfully convenient that suddenly he's confessed multiple times and now he's acting like he can barely speak. You know, he's... And that's the that's the strange thing, too, is... Certain people are saying, you know, he won't talk and he's acting really incoherent. But then they have uh, people that have met with him, like doctors have done mental health evaluations, have deemed that he's, you know, competent and they didn't have any specific mental health diagnoses that they gave him. So... You know, the whole thing is a little bit strange, but those documents are also out there. Um, There's a podcast called The Murder Sheet, and that's run by an attorney and a journalist, and they are, the big reason that those documents were released were the request of um, the two people that, it was Anya Kane and, I should, the, the attorney's name is Kevin I can't think of his last name, but anyhow, that's another good podcast. If you like the, um, these updates on recent cases, especially Delphi, they, they do a lot of deep dives on Delphi. If you're like completely unfamiliar, that's a really good place to start. So a little plug for them. I'm, I don't get paid for any of this. I, it's just my own personal, um, my own personal plug. So I think that's going to do it for today. So let me know if you like these update type episodes, if I get some good feedback from people. Um, If you actually want to email me at Amanda, M as in Mary, C as in Charlie, nurse, N-U-R-S-E at hotmail.com, just to give me some feedback, I would love that. And just tell me, do you like these update episodes or do you prefer the um, resolved cases um, like I said, I'm gonna be um doing an episode with my sister Laura who is my co-host. Hopefully in the next few days we're gonna get something out because I did complete research on a case. And so if you like those types of episodes, then we're gonna have more of that coming at you. So thank you so much for listening. And you know, if you could subscribe or tell a friend that way You know, we would love to be able to, you know, make a living doing this. And at this point in time, you know, this is all just a a hobby for us. We are just doing it for fun, but um, I would love to be able to do it more permanently. So thank you so much. Have a great night.